Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. I just want to extend another word of welcome to our guests. If you're with us today for the first time or second time, we're especially glad that you're here this morning. We're beginning a sermon series today, which will work through some Old Testament texts. And uh, it'll be seven weeks of this, so looking at some familiar Old Testament passages, and at least for me, some unfamiliar. I'm not sure what that's all about. How's that? We'll try that. Okay, so we are, uh, like I say, some, some of these texts are familiar to me. Some of these are not so familiar to me. Today would be one of those ones that's not as familiar, but... Um, the premise of this series, which we borrowed the idea from uh, a Duke Divinity School Old Testament professor uh, named Ellen Davis, and I've come to really appreciate her work over the years, and uh, she has written a little book called Getting Involved with God and Rediscovering the Old Testament, and so I hope that that's kind of what our journey becomes these few weeks, is uh, rediscovering some of the news of the Old Testament that uh, we need so desperately to hear. Namely, she says, you know, the, the good news that cries out across all the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, but that is that God is involved with us. That's the first thing that we learn. God has been involved with us from the beginning. He remains involved with us today. For those who are faithful and we remain in him, uh, he will be involved with us for eternity. So the hope here and uh, in, in the is a response to the invitation from a God who's involved with us for us to get involved with God. And that's what we hope to do through these few weeks here working on uh, this idea. You know, the, the antonym of involvement is distance or uh, exclusion, uh, just being kind of at an arm's length. And it's very common for us in the church and, and all over the world to know things about God, but stop short at an arm's length and not really get to know God. And that's not the vision, of course, that God would have for us. There's only so much we can know about God before those truths begin to shape and transform who we are and give us the life that he created us to live. Today we're going to look at a text from the Psalms. And the Psalms have been said, uh, the early church recognized this. They said, you know, it's like the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the books of the law, the Torah, it's like those are God speaking to us. And then in the Jewish imagination, the Psalms, which also have five books, were us learning to speak to God. So it's like the scripture that God has given us, it helps teach us how to talk to God. Uh, Ellen Davis call, talks about the Psalms and says that they are God's word. You know, that all of scripture is God's word to us. But the Psalms especially are God's word in us. They become our words that we speak to God. So the text we're looking at today is Psalm 109. If you'd like to follow along, uh, we'll be in this text for the duration of, of the sermon. And the question uh, beginning this psalm is, have you ever been angry? I mean, really angry. I don't mean like, I have a junior high daughter, she's not here so I can pick on her. I'm not talking about like Adele song, Angry, where I'm angry because I'm getting old and I'm nervous about it. Uh, I love that song, by the way. Don't let that influence your opinion of me or Adele, but not not that kind of anger. But I'm talking about the real kind of anger where you're just fuming mad and just it affects your health and affects your vision. And you're just angry, full of rage at a person 
or a group of people. I remember when I was a kid, I was probably 13 or 14, and my dad had a business partner who was just a sorry guy. And it was like everyone knew it, but my dad's just so trusting and just like, oh, you never know what might work. And this guy just, I mean, he was terrible. He ended up being terrible, of course, terrible deals. And my dad's kind of like water off the duck's back, you know. But as a kid, when I found out that somebody had hurt or betrayed somebody that I loved, I mean, I was just filled with rage. I remember thinking, if I see that guy in the in the hallway somewhere, I'm just going to wear him out. Uh, never mind that he was about 6'5 and probably weighed 250. And here I was, a little scrawny 13-year-old. But I mean, I had visions of just whooping him. I'm like, I can find a big enough bat or a piece of pipe or something, and I will lay into this guy, and he'll never mess with us again. You know? Okay, overreaction. But anyways, uh, I didn't have tools to deal, to deal with my anger, so I would just fantasize about how I could whip somebody. You know, this psalm that we're looking at today is one of what uh, scholars call the cursing psalms. And one of the things it's going to do for us is give us a tool for anger. For when we're that kind of anger, something that we can do instead of just fantasizing about how we might smash somebody's head with a baseball bat. Okay, maybe that's not yours, but that was that was mine. This is not a portion of scripture that you usually hear in church. Why is that? Well, let me just read a few verses of the psalm, and you will know. So, um, talking about an enemy, someone that used to be his friend, the psalmist says, When he is tried in court, let him be guilty. May his days be few. May someone else own everything that he used to own. Right? And it's just kind of spewing with a little, uh, what seems like, anger. So, have you ever come across a portion of Scripture that you just wondered as you're reading along, why is this in here? What is this doing in the Bible? I thought the Bible was all about, you know, patience and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control and gentleness and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. What is this flood story doing in here? What is this psalm doing in here? Scripture involves real people. God gets involved with real people and invites our reciprocation. It's not all bad that this psalm is unfamiliar or its use in worship. It's kind of like a song that's part of your songbook, but you don't sing it every week. It's not the main song, but it is an important song. It's like that tool in your toolbox or in your tool belt that you don't use every day. But when you need it, you really need it. And you need it to be sharp, and you need to know where it is. So you can't lose its place in the belt, but you just don't use it every day. It's not like the hammer. It's not like the chip, but there's, a, there's those little tools that you just need every so often. I wish I had this tool in my toolbox years ago. I wish I had this tool in my toolbox when I was 14. <laughs> I wish I had this toolbox just for all of adolescence in general, um, but I wish I had it in my toolbox. And I'm finally learning to say these things in my anger in the chapel, in the sanctuary. I have literally been in our chapel and said these words <laughs> before God and screamed them at the top of my lungs. There's another time that I was extremely angry uh, since I've received this tool in my tool belt. And I was just thinking about this this week, and I thought, you know, I'm not mad at that guy anymore. The old, my dad's old business partner, I'm still mad at him, so apparently I haven't done the work there, you know. But this guy, Amber and I had this guy uh, working for us in Abilene for a while. He was a young kid. We were trying to help him out. He was a uh, Hardin-Simmons student, and we, uh, we helped him get a get a car, we let him drive one of our cars, and, you know, we were just trying to help the kid kind of get on his feet and working through some stuff. Well, he had several issues, and those kind of began to blow up, and basically he 
ran off with the car and, you know, in shame and that kind of stuff. And he just trashed the car. I mean, just, we had to, you know, haul it off. And it was, uh, and several other things, you know, that he just did. And, and I just remember thinking, you know, of course had some compassion for him because he was young and he'd had a rough life. But I just took the advice of this Psalm with the kid. And I just said, you know what? I hope he never gets another job. I hope he gets run over by a semi on the highway and hope that whatever, you know, saying these things before God. So, okay, so listen, this actually happens in the Psalm. Okay, this is Psalm 109, and this is kind of my West Texas paraphrase of it. But if you look at about verse 6, this is what the psalmist said. He's talking about someone that he knows well. Okay, this is not someone who he transacts with over in India. This is somebody that he knows well, and he's saying, this guy has done me wrong. He's a bad dude. We're not talking about just, you know, he rooted for the wrong football team or whatever. He, this, this is bad stuff. And so the guy, you know, he's, he's bringing his prayer before God, and this is what he says. This is David in my paraphrase. May a bad dude meet him in a dark alley. Let, let somebody take him to court and let him lose. May every one of his prayers miss their target. See to it, God, that his days are numbered. A very small number. May somebody rob him blind. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins that they inhabit. May the bank repossess everything that he owns. May nobody show him any kindness, even by having pity on those fatherless kids. May his name and legacy be got forgotten forever. For he didn't show kindness, and he prayed upon the poor, and he prayed upon the needy. He didn't seek your blessings, so would you keep your blessings away from him? He clothed himself by cursing others. Would you let that coat of cursing be like water that soaks into his skin, like oil that saturates all the way down to his bones? Can you feel the anger and the precise request for this guy's life to be horrible, for the evil to come back on him that he has dished out, right? The cursing psalms give us a couple of things. They give us practical guidance. This psalm is a prayer for healing. We'll read in a moment how the psalm ends, and it is a legitimate prayer for healing. It's a psalm that invites us to move through our anger, not avoid our anger, not cover up or bury our anger, but actually deal with our anger and let it out in the presence of God. Because healing is not the same thing as pretending that it's not there. So it's taking that wound and just putting it on display before God and saying, you know what, I hope this quits hurting and I hope the guy that gave it to me gets what's coming to him. And it puts it in the presence of God. This is not fatalism. This is not surrender to just whatever might happen. The Psalms give us words for our anger. That's the first thing that the cursing Psalms give us. They give us words when we're mad so we don't just grit our teeth and throw things at people. In the midst of crisis, we need words for our anger. The cursing Psalms give us that. The truth is what we often experience in the world is inexplicable rage. Sometimes it makes perfect sense, and other times we have no idea where it came from. We don't know why this particular thing pushed our button, which points to all the evil that surrounds us. We tend to be a little too polite before God, and God is involved with us, 
He's inviting us to be involved with him. And if that's the case, it means the whole deal. Lock, stock, and barrel. What we bring with us when we come to prayer, which is not always sunshine and daisies. Leaving our words of anger on the altar. The cursing psalms also give us an affirmation that even anger can be a pathway to God. The psalms display this beautifully. Any human emotion can be a pathway to God. Every human emotion that I know of can be found in the psalms. You can feel, you can hear, you can see. And it reminds us that even these things are pathways to God, ways that we come to God. God comes alongside and actually says, hey, you know, some of those things make me pretty mad too. God demonstrates that he is angry at many of the things that make us angry. And each Christian, each baptized Christian has a responsibility to name and to resist what makes God angry, namely evil. The evil one and the evil that ensues. It is our responsibility as Christians to resist evil in the world. I remember being on a vacation with the kids several years ago, and we were in Santa Fe, and we went to a children's museum. And, you know, at that age, and the kids were just, oh, they were loving all the little exhibits and all the little things, and they had story hour. And I just have to say that story hour in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is a little different than story hour in, uh, you know, Sweetwater, Texas. But anyways, we were there, and all the kids, and gathered around. And I remember the story that this sweet little young girl read was basically a children's story that kind of said, you know, you know, life and life, and goes on. And isn't it nice that there really aren't any bad people? That there really isn't any evil in the world. That we're all just good people at heart and just la di da li da And I was like, I'm about to get my kids up and leave because that's garbage. Where are my fairy tales? Where did the fairy tales go? Somebody tell me the story of the three little pigs because that's real life, right? Yeah, you, they finally get the wolf, but two of them die. I mean, it's hard. Life is tough. These are the stories that give kids a moral compass that say there is bad stuff out there. And you have to learn to identify it so you can resist it. If you just pretend that it's not there, we never know. We're never equipped to fight it. We're never equipped to deal with it. This is why we love fairy tales. This is why our kids need fairy tales. This is why the real Cinderella story has to be told. This is why in our baptismal vows... This is the crazy thing that we say. And some of you said them, and many of you have said them for your kids, and then they've taken them up when they're confirmed. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of the world, and repent of your sin? And we, like crazy people, say, we do. Do you accept the freedom and the power that God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? We do. The last thing uh, that I want to bring up that the cursing psalms give us is reminding us that a cry for vengeance in prayer, now a cry for vengeance on social media calls for many other things. <laughs> so I think it's kind of time we stop cursing our enemies on social media and start cursing them in the chapel in God's presence. That's kind of how this works a little more healthily. So a cry for vengeance inherently contains a plea for God to act. Because all prayer is a cry for God to do something, right? Give us this day our daily bread. In fact, uh, the uh, 
church used to like to talk about, you know, they got all excited about, you know, you had the seven deadly sins and you had seven virtues. There are seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer. There are seven beatitudes. And they like, I have a little chart that I made up, you know, looking across. So what, what is the antidote for wrath, which is this kind of anger? The antidote for wrath is the part of the Lord's Prayer that says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer that has room for our anger and say, God, you do your will on this earth. Because I don't know where to go. It is an inherent plea for God to do something. Psalm 109, a little bit later, Help me, O Lord my God. Help me. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let those enemies of mine know that this is your hand, that you, O Lord, have done it. So it's not just I hope all these things happen to my enemy, but may they know that it came from the hand of God. And you know what? There's a little bit of hope there. Uh, Ellen Davis mentioned that through these psalms, through these cursing psalms, we demand that our enemies be driven into the hands of God. And once they're driven into the hands of God, we lose control. Who is to say what God will do with our enemies? And that's the beauty of surrender. That's the beauty of prayer. Is I'm taking the enemy in my life who has power over me, obviously, because I'm gritting my teeth mad. And I am placing him in the hands of a rightful judge. A God who loves perfectly, but who judges perfectly. And is powerful enough and loving enough to judge the quick and the dead. That's where we want to place our enemies. Who's, who's to say what God does with them after that? And finally, when you stumble upon Psalm 109 this morning, maybe by God's grace there is no anger in you. And you're thinking, that's all fine and good. I'll save that for a later day, which is great. So what can we do with this prayer today if we're not full of wrath and rage? which surely is not all of us at the very moment. One of the exercises to do with the cursing psalms is to turn them just a little bit and to imagine, huh, are there any people in this world who are praying people, who are praying these cursing psalms for me, <laughs> right? Is there somebody out there for whom I have become a stumbling block? And they're in their chapel praying, man, I hope that Strebeck gets what's coming to him because he has made my life miserable or whatever version of that we might have. Where have I become an enemy because of the places that I have missed the mark? And then finally, another one of the cursing psalms, Psalm 55. Hear these words. It is not enemies who taunt me. I could stand that. It is not adversaries who deal so insolently with me. I could at least hide from them. But it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, with whom I kept pleasant company. We walked in the house of God together. As I read those words, and I thought about the evil of betrayal and what we sometimes face at the hands of our friends, even our closest friends, and placing them also in the presence of God. I thought of Jesus Christ, who was betrayed by one of his friends. Can you imagine him with this psalm on his lips saying, 
Judas, I could have, I could have handled it when the Pharisees betrayed me. But Judas, we ate together. We slept in the same camp out style places together. Why Judas? Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be wronged. Part of the good news of the cursing Psalms in the whole context of Scripture is that that is the God that hears our prayers. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.